the servant came there to make somebody better, mm-hmm. to make their life better, to resource the other person. And so this is what Jesus demonstrated. So that is completely incompatible with our ideas of leadership right now. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Living Scent Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Wester, and this podcast exists to help you live like an everyday missionary in your household, neighborhood, your workplace, and your city. And if you are new to this podcast community, I wanted to let you know that I release a new episode on the first Wednesday of each month. And my promise to you is this, that I will work very hard to bring content that is valuable to you, your church, and your organization. You know, if you haven't left a review yet on this podcast, I'd encourage you to do so. Sharing how this content has impacted you not only encourages me, but it puts some wind in my sails and it also helps others really by expanding this podcast reach to those who would benefit from it as well. So a big thank you in advance for leaving a review, rating the podcast, and sharing it with a friend. Well, I mentioned last month that we've got a few interviews lined up for this year, and this is the first one for 2024. And I am really excited for you to hear from my friend, Lance Ford, because he's written a new book. It releases this month, and it's called The Atlas Factor, Shifting Leadership onto the Shoulders of Jesus. And I know that many of you who are listening are leading in some way, shape, or form. You know, perhaps you're serving on staff at a local church. Maybe you help lead a missional community in your city, or maybe you are a missionary in the marketplace and you are responsible to lead others within your organization. You know, whatever the case may be, I think you're really going to be challenged by what Lance has to share. So let's jump into the interview and I'll connect with you toward the end of the podcast for a final word. Here's my interview with Lance Ford. All right, well, welcome to the Living Scent Podcast. I'm so excited to have Lance Ford on the podcast today. He has just released uh, his latest book. It's called The Atlas Factor, Shifting Leadership onto the uh, Shoulders of Jesus. Like the the image itself on the the cover of the book kind of caught me. I think for many people, and I was one of them, you're, you're familiar with that image. You know, this person holding up the world Right, but that's actually like a an ancient Greek, uh, mythological god, right? Like, wasn't yeah. he punished to hold yeah, up the world? Yeah, he was punished to hold up the world, right? And you know, when I think about leadership in the church, sometimes there's a pressure there, or sometimes there's an expectation there that makes leaders think I've got to do just that. Mm-hmm. And you share a little bit about this, but I'd love to hear from you on this. Was there ever a time in your story where you thought, okay, I'm acting just like Atlas. Like I'm trying to hold up everything, be everything to everyone. And if so, like, how did you start to rethink that? Like, how did, how did the Lord change that perspective in your life? Yeah, well, there was a couple of things. So I planted a, or led a team to plant a church. Um, back in St. Louis, but this is back in the mid-1990s. And just all the energy and everything that it that it took to do that in the way that we were doing it. So this was in the mid-90s, and I don't even know, Justin, if you're old, if you're old enough to <laughs> have heard of the Seeker movement, the Seeker yeah, Church movement. absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, all the Seeker Church movement was 
everything, you know, marketing and, and excellence and yada, yada, yada. And then you add on to that the rise, especially that was when leadership, leadership, leadership was being talked about. It just had started being talked about ad nausea. Um, and so the, the pressure was you've got to be a great leader. Uh, everything rises or falls on leadership, right? So, uh, you know, that was the mantra. And I remember, in fact, one of my uh, church planting mentors, very successful church planter, um, they had planted lots of churches. And I remember one day I was with him and I just asked him, I said, what's really the bottom line of whether a church plant's going to make it or not and is going to grow? And he said, do you really want to know? And I hmm. said, yeah. And he said, the guy. And so that meant me, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's all on you. Uh, not Jesus, not that Jesus is building his church, but it's, it's, it's all on the dude, on the guy. And that pretty much is the ideology in most church planting, um, is, is that you have to be this fantastic leader. And so I, after 10 years of that planting a quote, successful church, starting to grow it and everything. Um, I just got worn out. I, you know, I got, you know, people will call it burnout, but it was more than burnout. Um, it was just, uh, even though we were quote being success, successful, but I was feeling something is off about this whole way of doing it. Now I had no language for it. I had no idea because I was thinking the way everybody else was thinking. I mean, I was reading everything. I was, I, was, I had my subscription to John Maxwell's Enjoy Club. I couldn't wait every month to get my cassette tapes and notes <laughs> from him. And, and, you know, and, and, and I was, I was, I knew my Amazon delivery guy by first name because he d delivered books to me about two or three times a week. And so my whole, I had a giant library of leadership books. But the pressure of it finally just was like, this is, there's got to be a different way. Something, something's messed up here. And so that's what started me on the journey. Yeah. Well, I mentioned to you that in 2013, I was in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, working for Liberty University, University at a department called the Center for Ministry Training. And you released a book, I think it was in 2012, mm -hmm. called Unleader. And I mean, that's like, that's over 10 years ago now, and some of what was in Unleader carries over to the latest book, The Atlas Factor. Like, if you could hold those two books kind of in tandem, how would you say that the leadership culture in the church in America has changed? Has it changed? If so, how? Like, what does it look like today compared to 2012? Yeah, well, here's... Here's the biggest thing that's changed is that we've had so many leaders exposed and called out for the things that I was talking about in Unleader in 2012. Uh, now, back then, a lot of people thought I was, you know, had lost it. Was like, what, you know, there's not a problem. What, yeah. What's wrong with you, man? And yeah. uh, so. Uh, so I was, and, and, and I don't claim that I was a voice crying in the wilderness because there were some other voices. I mean, David Fitch had already written some really good stuff about it yeah. and, and said, was saying some good stuff. 
Um, there's a guy, a blogger in Canada, a great guy named Bill Kinnon that had, who was blogging and saying good stuff. Brad Sargent is a guy that doesn't get near enough credit. Brilliant guy that's been saying a lot of this stuff for a long time. Uh, I think I kind of was able to kind of curate it and put it together and then put together a lot of my own thoughts and everything. But the biggest thing that's changed is the exposure and because up to that point when you would have a leadership crisis in the church when a a pastor would go down it usually was just because of some type of sexual impropriety Mm -hmm. um now we started having guys going down sometimes there's a mixture of that sometimes that's that's included but there's a lot of them that are going down even without that, because they're, they are being called out for bullying, for abusing their staff, for pride, for, you know, the, these types of things. And so I think that's the biggest thing that's changed is now they're starting to be an opening. I mean, when you get in Driscoll was really the first big name that went down in 2014. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when you have Bill Hybels go down, that's I, I mean, that's that's. That's as big as it gets. I mean, he was probably the biggest shaper as far as for the attractional church. Um, for what we see today in the church, uh, most recently, uh, the, the way that they put systems together and training and everything, he was incredibly influential. And so when you get Hybels going down, uh, I mean, in, anybody's touchable. And then you, of course, Rabbi Zacharias. Uh, we could just go on and on and on. James McDonald, just, and it's so many of the same things. So I think that's the biggest thing that's changed since then is there's more of an openness now to take a look at our systems. Yeah. So if, if someone were to be familiar with Unleader and then maybe they pick up the Atlas Factor, um, would, would they think that you're against leadership? Like, are you against leadership? Like, is that the message? And if not, like, what, how, do you, how do you clarify that? Um, yeah. Because the way I see it, it's, it's not leadership per se. It's, it's, a, it's a component of it. Could you speak to that? Yeah, we need leadership. We need, uh, need good leadership, and we need it more than ever. So I am not against leadership. My question always comes back, but what leadership? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that when we run around with that mantra that I mentioned earlier, saying everything rises or falls on leadership, uh, the first question, you know, that's like saying, uh, hey, the key to health is, is uh, food. Well, yeah, are we talking Twinkies <laughs> and Snickers, or are right. we talking about fresh fruit and, you know, non-GMO vegetables? So you can't just blank say we need leaders, we need, you know, better leadership. Uh, If every system, it's an old saying, every system is perfectly designed to give you the results it's getting. Mm -hmm. And so the the issue with leadership today is it's a systemic issue. What's the source of the leadership? Does the leadership uh, pass through the filter of Jesus? Does it pass through the filter of the fruit of the spirit? Paul couldn't have been any clearer. He talks about all these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, and we both know that he didn't write in chapter and verse. I mean, these were letters, and so you continually keep reading. And so 
chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians follows chapter 12 because after he's talking about these gifts that the Lord pours out, he says, if you don't operate in love, you're a gong show. I mean, mm-hmm. you're a ding dong, right? <laughs> That's all you are. And yet we so quickly forget it and we give leadership immunity to people all the time because they're so gifted or they're producing. Yeah. I wanted to to read something because I thought it it uh, was really well stated. On, on page 58, you said, do we need leadership in the church? Absolutely. Do we need better leadership? That's an understatement. The error is that we've made leadership a position rather than a product. You say like fruit and vegetables. The person who cultivates fruit and vegetables does not call herself a tomatoer or a cucumber or she's a gardener or a farmer. Uh, leadership in the church must be seen in the same way as an outcome. Uh, those things are outcomes of the, the gardener or farmer. Good leadership in the church is the fruit of humble servants who have emptied themselves of selfish ambition. In the church, we are all servants, and the outcome of faithful servants is leadership. And I thought that was really clarifying. Um, and you you talk a lot about uh, servanthood, and I wanted to see if you would speak to this. You know, why is or why might servanthood be a better posture uh, than leadership, what we've always heard, and what happens when servanthood is the goal rather than just great leadership? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that we've really, it's classic reductionism, the way that we look at servantship or, or, or servanthood in the Bible. Uh, because if you were to ask, just, I mean, I can't imagine any pastor or any leader that wouldn't claim to be a servant. But if you look at the way that they operate, if you just look at, let, let's, let's do this. If you just look at the perks and the privileges that so many pastors and executive pastors have in their churches, there's no way that you could say this person is the greatest servant on that team because they have rights and privileges. Uh, they have the ability to hire and fire and dominate others, that's incompatible with the idea of being a servant, much less being the most abject, servile-minded person on the team. So it's just, it's just talk. It's just, it's just blah, 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 blah. It's, 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 it's not honesty. And so we're dishonest. Now, back in the day, those disciples, that early church, those people, they knew what a servant was. And and it was not a job anybody wanted. Mm. So when you're, you know, the, the, the person that's washing people's feet and things like this, and they didn't have indoor plumbing and carrying out, you know, the porta pot and different things like this. <laughs> okay, that's that's what a servant was. A servant came there to make somebody better to make their life better, to resource the other person. And so this is what Jesus demonstrated. So that is completely incompatible with our ideas of leadership right now. Mm. And so that's why I say that leadership is a product. It's a fruit that should be part of the culture. So you lead by demonstrating that's what your leadership is. You don't lead by bossing and all this other stuff and dominating others, which obviously 
Matthew 20, this is what Jesus forbade. Hmm. Yes, entirely different postures. You know, and I think about the last night that Jesus has with his disciples and what does he choose to do? He gets in the posture of a servant. And that that is, I think about the disciples even after Christ was raised from the grave and then ascended into heaven. Like that image and that memory must have been burned in their mind. Had to like be. For, forever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think you're, you're spot on. So I wanted to kind of shift gears a little bit um, and discuss some of the, the biblical concepts that help people, I think, reframe uh, the way we think about leadership. And in chapter 5, you talk about the household of faith. And you talk really about how important language is. So if someone were to be listening today, you know, we've got people leading in, in local churches and, and leading some nonprofits. Um, what if they just said, well, you know, language is language. It doesn't really mean anything. Like, who cares if I call them a hireling or an employee? That doesn't matter. Just as long as, as they get the job done and, and do what they're supposed to do. Like, how would you, how would you coach that person? What, what might you say to them to help them kind of begin to rethink some things? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. Uh, the first thing I would say is that it's, it's important to understand why language matters and how powerful language is in shaping a culture. And whether this be a culture of a city or it be a culture of a corporation, culture of a family, small group, whatever, everything has culture. And so lang the language that we use goes a long way, not only in shaping that, but to constantly calibrate it back mm. to whatever it is. And so this is why language matters. And so if, if I call somebody an employee and I'm the boss, that's a distinguisher immediately. That's a power distinguisher. Mm. So every time that word is uttered, boom, it readjusts. It sets you back in your place. Mm. Okay. But you work for me. Well, that concept, where is that concept anywhere in the New Testament of the way that the church works? That comes straight out of the world. And this goes right back to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 20. The Gentiles exercise dominion or lord over one another. It will not be so among you. The greatest will be the servant, right? The first will be, the last will be first. He's calibrating. So language makes all the difference. And you never see anywhere in the New Testament hierarchical uh, language allowed for the church. You don't see boss, you don't see employ, and there's no there's no Greek words for that that are used. It's sibling language, brothers mm -hmm. and sister. Why? Because he's, and Jesus even says this when Jesus tells us that not to use hierarchical titles, don't call yourself father, don't call yourself leader, don't call yourself this, don't call yourself that. He's using a hierarchical language, and then he punctuates it by saying, because you all have one father. He's saying you're brothers and sisters. There is an equality. Now, that doesn't mean everyone has the same amount of, of, of strength in their gifting. And you may want to talk about that. You may have questions about that. But there is, when we're talking about equality, it's it, we're, I'm, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination trying to sell someone on the idea that 
on any team or any group of any size that everybody has the same talent and the same ability. I'm not saying that. So when I'm talking about equality, I'm saying everyone should have this equal opportunity to use their giftings and to flourish in the freedom of that giftings. But that also requires a person who's lesser gifted than someone else to recognize that and recognize in the moment that, you know, this other person, you know, this person hits 320. <laughs> I hit 230. And in crunch time, I'd much rather, for the team's sake, have him up to bat, you know, when we got two outs in the bottom of the ninth and we need a couple of runs. Uh, but on the other hand, how many times have we seen that 230 hitter get up and shock the world, right? Yep. So you have to have an atmosphere that goes both ways, that the stronger gifted person and the lesser gifted person are in a culture that there's a culture that allows both of them to feel free and to feel confidence and to feel that their other team member has confidence in them because the Holy Spirit in the moment may give the word of wisdom to that 230 hitter rather than that 330 hitter. But in our leadership systems, most of the time, because there's fear or there's intimidation, that lesser gifted person stays quiet and doesn't speak up or they're not taken seriously. They're not considered to have the acumen and the gifting to uh, speak into a situation. So you, rarely do they get to use their gifts um, uh, you know, at, at the level that the Lord has gifted them. Yeah, that's good. I want to kind of come back to that, but I want to ask you one more thing, because I, I saw your book as kind of breaking into three sections, these really three big ideas, and this is the last one that I want to touch on, and then, and then I'll circle back around. Mm -hmm. So you talked a little bit about, is it pronounced the Rosetto effect? Rosetto. Mm -hmm. Rosetto effect. Um, could you kind of explain just in a nutshell where that name came from and what exactly some of the researchers found that gave rise to that, that phrase? Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and this has been studied a bit in, um, gosh, in fact, I'm thinking Malcolm Gladwell. I came across at one point that Malcolm Gladwell had written about it, but the Rosetto effect is this little town back in the early 1960s in Pennsylvania. It's basically a village, but it, long story short, it was a, it, its roots were it was an Italian uh, immigrant village. And this doctor, uh, discovered this cardiac doctor discovered that there was almost zero uh, heart issues uh, for men like above 60 in this area. I mean, he just, he didn't have any patients there. And so anyway, this other, this, this, uh, the head of the um, medical department at Oklahoma University at OU uh, heard about it, sent a whole team of researchers in to study this little village. And they, and they verified that there's just, that these, there's almost no heart issues, but the, so they're trying to figure it out and figure out why do these guys, you know, why, why does this village have such uh, good heart health? And so as they looked at it, they tried to figure out what are the reasons, surely it's diet. Well, no, this is an Italian village. You can imagine what these Italians are eating, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know all this, you know, cholesterol laden 
you know, pasta and cheeses and marinara. Well, they probably don't drink alcohol. That's why. No, they're Italians. They are <laughs> guzzling wine like it's water, right? Well, surely they don't. They're starting at that point, figure out that smoking might be bad for you. Well, they probably don't smoke. No, even the women smoke at a higher average in Rosetto than the national average. So they couldn't figure it out. So they sent the anthropologists in and come to find out it was the way they were living. And uh, uh, several factors came into play. One of them was that there was three generations living in each home, mm -hmm. which meant grandma and grandpa didn't get just immediately sent off by their, they were there. Uh, they, the, the older ones brought a lot of wisdom and anchoring and comfort and protection and safety to the rest of the family. They were there to, 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 to help the young moms, you know, and yada, yada, yada. So that was one of the factors. They found out that people were very neighborly, that they really, that there was, it was a tight knit village that helped one another, that even the more wealthy didn't flaunt their wealth. Um, but because of the way that they lived. And so there were several other factors, but that all basically the reason they had a good physical heart was because they had good hearts. They were good towards one another and the way that they lived. And then about 20 years later or 30 years later, they came back and studied Rosetto again. And they were back at all the national averages as far as heart health as everybody else. But a big part of the reason was uh, that they could conclude was because the churches had been moved out of the center of the, the village and neighborhood churches had gone off to the edge of the suburbs where, lot, where land was cheaper and the freeways would hit them and uh uh privacy fences had evolved no longer did you have three generations living together and uh, the heart health suffered uh, wow. because of it too so that that was some of the things yeah that's wild you use that story to kind of springboard into the importance of embracing uh eldership and local elders in leading churches correct like how yeah how, in fact people in connect fact, the dots there yeah well i'm glad you because that was a key factor I, for, I, I, I forgot to mention that other thing they had had not not only were they living with three generations in the household they also had created a town council of elders of the older people so they had older men and women on this town council and if uh neighbors or residents were going to bring a lawsuit against one another had some type of a conflict so they had this deal that said you can't proceed with your lawsuit until you at least give a shot at setting down with the elders wow and let them try to arbitrate and see if they get and so it it it, it they it, it almost eliminated to a hundred percent any lawsuits because usually these elders the older people had the wisdom and the solitude and the and the inner peace to be able to 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 bring a lot of most of the conflict to an end and it was a beautiful and so as i as i had studied the Rosetto, i thought man in most of our churches we don't look at eldership that way hmm. we don't view it that way right we usually view it as well, you got to find some of the sharpest businessmen, uh, you know, and it's usually guys, it's usually men. So you got to find some men that have been successful, uh, bankers, lawyers, 
executives and these will be these will be the ones that and and the second thing is is the job description so they're they're here to make financial and strategic mm -hmm. decisions on what the church does and what the church goes where the church goes well you just don't find that that ideology it, nothing anywhere close in the new testament to that being what an elder is mm -hmm. so first off elders are older ones there are there they are older ones and one of the things that i found and i what well, i tell you um young church planners don't like it when they when they hear me say this but they don't like it at first until they can kind of noodle on it a little bit um but i would say this and and, and you can just start pulling up church websites of young churches and you look at the list of elders some of these guys aren't even shaving yet <laughs> okay yeah. so i mean they're they're not elders okay they're uh, i think i think in the book i call them el elder ish or something i forget sure. what, I, what i call them. they're elder ish uh and the only reason that they're elders is because the church is so young it's such a a, a, a young group of of, of younger people that these are the oldest or the most experienced, mm -hmm. you know, in the group. Uh, but even as the church starts growing and starts attracting or drawing in older men and women, rarely are those elders um, leaned into and, the cult and, and allowed to cultivate their wisdom and import their wisdom into the body. And so, uh, I, you know, I've looked at this for years and years and years, and I mean, I've coached a ton of church planters over the years. And one of the things I've said is, look, you really need to pray in and look for older men and women because they've got so much gifting to pour in. These are your elders. And this doesn't mean that a younger person, younger, I believe that you do need some younger blood Oh, in your elders, because that the, the younger ones have the strength to, to run. And so it's like, I, and I was one of those guys, you know, but now I'm the older guy that can sit on the porch, have a conversation with the young guy, sit there with my coffee, pat him on the back and say, go get them. That's right. Uh, that's right. You know, so it's just a different role. It's a, it's, it's a different place, but we need both. And I think that there's a ton of wisdom in the body because of misalignment. Uh, that we're just it's dormant and you see that the role of elders is prevalent i mean it's interesting the word pastor is only used one time in the new testament hmm. and yet everybody's called a pastor uh the but you see elders dozens of times in the new testament and it's never the elders over or the elders that were the businessmen the word is always the elders among them shoulder to shoulder so it's not this hierarchical decision making uh role mm -hmm. primarily no it's sage it's it's the sages that are yeah. there and i think that the gifting and the wisdom and the understanding and the comfort that they can bring into the body it's a it's a it's a huge missing piece that's sitting right under our nose it's gifts that aren't unwrapped in the book, I think you mentioned something that I thought was great, uh, almost like elders serving as watchmen uh, mm. in, in that they've got 
almost like a better sight. They're like, man, I can see what's coming. Yeah. Uh, and I'm able to share, you know, my knowledge, but also my experiences of how this is played out. Here's what I yes. see. And I'm going to share that. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Justin, because that, and that's what oversight is. So once again, in most of our hierarchical viewpoints of leadership, when we hear the word oversight, we we immediately think, well, that's the boss of this. You know, that's the one in charge of this. And that's not what the oversight, that's not what the word oversight means. So overseer, oversight, that Greek word, episcope, which we get the word bishop. So it literally means that you are sitting at a high, so it would be like the watchman in the watchtower. Mm-hmm. In the watchtower, the watchman in the watchtower has a view that can see what's beyond the hills, what's beyond the valley. And so he or she can stand there and see this army come into attack and can call down into the courtyard and say, hey, <laughs> they're coming at us. And everybody mm-hmm. looks out there and says, I don't see anything. You, you <laughs> lost your mind. Yeah. You know, you're, you're crazy. There's not a problem. And he's going to yeah. fix bayonets. That's <laughs> you know? right. That's right. So that's what it means to be an overseer. It's not to be in charge. It means that you have a perspective and a viewpoint for the reason of safety and security. And on the other hand, that overseer also was the one that could see that runner coming with good news. You know, and you remember the scripture, you know, uh, you know, how blessed, you know, is the, you know, are we because of the one, the feet of those who bring good news because they could see the, you know, they didn't have texting. They didn't have internet. They sent messages with runners. And so if the runner really was picking up his pace, they could tell by the way their runner, a messenger was running, if it was good news or bad news. And so they would be screaming down to everybody, hey, there's good news coming. We must have won the battle or whatever. Right. So that's part of being an overseer. And uh, but we pretty much shut most of that down in in the church. Hmm. Well, I kind of wanted to shift the conversation as we, we draw to a close here to, you know, giving some people some practical steps, you know, and I shared this before. It's like the first time I came in contact with some of your work, it was a little bit of a shock, you know, Um, I I think in this book in particular, you tackle some big ideas, you tackle some of our preconceived notions about what leadership is in general. If somebody's listening right now and and they're just a little like shell shocked, you know, they're like, oh man, like my whole world is, is kind of blown up right now. I'm thinking through so many things. What would be like a next step for them? How would you coach them in uh, taking a, a more critical look at some of the systems and structures in the organization where they serve? Yeah. Well, the first thing, I would, like when I work with teams or I work with churches uh, to do the very thing that you just said, is we take an evaluation. Uh, I've got a lot. In fact, at the end of, I think at the end of just about every chapter, in the atlas factor i have questions for teams and you know a lot of our books do that and sometimes it's just like it's kind of like filler stuff or whatever really try to give these questions to really be something that that teams really can do to kind of do mm-hmm. a self-assessment because a lot of times especially the ones that have the most uh authority in a church they think everything's fine they think everything's good <laughs> Yeah. But, and, and part of that is because they do have the power there. They have the freedom. And yet 
everybody else on their staff or on their team that doesn't, they're not going to speak up about that. They're not going to complain. They're not going to, you know, raise their voice about it. They're just going to keep their head down and keep going about it. So this causes that executive team to think everything's just fine. Well, the questions that I've tried to put in the back of each one of these chapters is to is to get down to the truth of that of that mm -hmm. matter is to break through that uh you know that yakety yak and and to really get to the facts of the matter of the culture so that's one of the things is that i have them kind of look at those but then i have deeper assessments if i'm really working on a consult or a coaching with a team and to really take a, a look at what we do is we really do take a, a good look at their leadership system and their leadership culture. And, but then to come back and say, okay, here's what that assessment looks like uh, from all the aspects that we've talked about here, even to the point of, of, of like the elders, of what does eldership look like in your church? <laughs> because the point is, Hey, is there some missing strength and wisdom here that's being that's sitting in your pews that could be activated? Because the other play, the other thing about elders, for instance, is there's a lot of older people that think it's game over for them that they're that yeah. they're not useful. They are a gold mine that's just usually sitting dormant. So it can help their lives too because they get to be used by the Lord again and get in the game. So we do assessments on those. We look at look at the areas that need to be changed and then we try to rebuild the system to try to you know which which means that look uh, and and this is the thing is and we've talked about it you asked the questions i am for leadership but the question is what type of leadership so you can't just flatten your leadership and think everything's going to be great no you'll have chaos if you do that it, 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 you, you cannot do that. So we're not talking about some free for all. And so the way that we rebuild the systems is we create a system of micro agreements hmm. and processes, you know, like for instance, we talk about the advice process in here. So right. how does decisions get made? They get made. We talk about a dismissal process. What does that look like? Well, the dismissal process in most leadership systems, is one or two guys at the top have the authority and power to dismiss anybody at any time. Um, so uh, how do you replace these systems? And how do, what is the new operating system? So that's a big part of it is coming in and working through and seeing what needs to be changed in that and helping, helping teams uh, re, you know, rebuild their leadership system to uh, one that is more congruent and is lined up with the way that we would see the body of Christ should be lined up with her head, Jesus. And that takes a lot of work. Uh, that, that's, that's an understand. That takes an understatement. It that does. takes a, a ton of work. And what I find is that um, many people would rather inherit an old system just because it's done and they don't have to think about it versus putting in the work to really interrogate what it is they're mm -hmm. inheriting. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just like I commend you for that because I do think it's a worthwhile process um, if we are going to align to the head that is Jesus of the church. I mean that's that's the whole reason that we do yeah. what we do. We're serving Him and through His power. And so um, I really appreciate that. You know, I, as we're wrapping things up here, I wrote just a couple more things down. You know, if if, if somebody's listening and they're, they're really starting to wrestle with some of this idea and they want to start moving in that direction. 
parting words for them? Where would they go? How would they get in contact with, with some of those resources that you, you yeah. already mentioned? Well, we do have a website and uh, it's theatlasfactor.com. Um, if someone wants to, in fact, of the contact, there's a contact form on there and everything if you want to go on there. But, uh, or just email at info at the atlasfactor.com. But the book can be found at any, you know, bookseller, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all those kind of things. But they also can buy the, buy, uh, the book in, in bulk through our website. Okay. Um, there's different, different ways to do that, but that's the way that, that, that we can be gotten in touch. Awesome. And, and directly with you through that website as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see all those emails and I try to respond pretty quickly. Uh, I think I do respond pretty quickly. So uh, that was, is a good way. Now I'm, I need to confirm this. I think, I think that uh, our webmaster has it because this is all new Yeah. because uh, the book is, you know, just come out. But uh, I think I have a email. I know I have an email address that's Lance at the Atlas Factor dot com also okay. so either info at the atlas factor dot com or lance at the atlas factor dot com awesome and and we'll link to all the uh websites and email addresses in the show notes for people to to touch base with you that way as well hey Fantastic. thank you so so much um for your time lance i really really enjoyed uh, doing this interview reading the atlas factor and i hope to to have you on in the future as well. I know you're going to continue chipping away at some things and I'm always following what, what you guys are up to. So thanks again. And, uh, you take care. Thanks, Justin. Wow. There's a lot there to process and, you know, maybe that scrambled your eggs a little bit, so to speak. And if so, I wanted to remind you that the transcripts from this episode, as well as some additional questions and resources are available to you when you download the show notes from this episode and they're free. So to get them, all you need to do is head over to my website at justinwester.com. Just navigate to the podcast tab and you can download them from there. You know, I'd love to hear from you this week. Maybe even it's related to this month's episode. If you'd like to reach out to me personally, again, just head over to my website, click on the connect tab, and I'd love to hear from you that way. Well, that's all for this month. Remember, you don't have to live sent. You get to. We'll see you next time.